Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is a 7 West Media podcast. Oh, no. My child is sick. But how sick? It's two in the morning. Paranoia has set in and you're frantically checking their temperature in and out of their room, worrying, pacing, wondering what on earth you're going to do if they get sicker. Do I call a doctor or, heaven forbid, take them to hospital? Today, we're talking childhood illness and injury. Welcome to Being Dad with me, Alex Cullen. It's a big worry for any parent, and it's a cold, hard fact of life, unfortunately, that your child, at some point, will get sick. Now, I hear horror stories of hand, foot, and mouth disease. I thought that was only in livestock for a long time. In sheep, but no, no, it's not. Um, These things breaking out at, you know, childcare (laughs) centres. Or the latest, scariest, grossest wave of gastro sweeping through the schoolyard. You know, it's funny, my brother recently got a terrible, terrible bout of gastro um, from a mate's kid who got it from his school. So then my brother went and spread it to his family and so on and so on. He was not popular. And my other brother said, oh, you must have felt like that monkey in the film Outbreak that spread that terrible disease to the US. (gasps) Awful, awful stuff. But seriously. Childhood illness is very scary business, and it's important we know all the signs of how sick your child really is, and whether or not we should, well, or should not, take them to hospital. That is the big question, isn't it? Do we take them? Do we don't? It's three in the morning. I don't know. We're here to help you answer those questions. But Gary Hansford is a dad whose little girl, Jenna, is living proof of what can happen if you don't really know the signs of just how sick your child might be. Gary is one of the greats, let me tell you. He's the loveliest, warmest, kindest man, um, and I just love him. I love talking to him. He wears his heart in his sleeve, and he's just a champion. But in the early hours of an August morning in 2015, uh, Jenna was sick. From what he and his wife, Karen, thought was the flu. Of course they did. She had the sniffles. She had a fever. She was vomiting. And then they put her to bed. But it turned out to be something much, much worse. Now, I had the pleasure of meeting Gary, Karen, little Jenna, who was four at the time, and her older sister, Amelia, for a story back in my days with Sunday Night on Channel 7. Uh, We spent a wonderful few days with these guys. They're just a, an amazing family who've who've been through a lot, um, but they're getting there and they're doing really, really well. I spoke to Gary during his lunch break at his workplace. He's a very, very busy man just outside Adelaide. And it was so good to talk to him again. I can't tell you how much it was. It was really, really nice. And, and to find out how he and, and the family are doing now, four years later. Here he is, Gary Hansford. Hey, Gary, thanks for doing this, mate. Appreciate it. Really oh, do. Pleasure. And it's good to talk to you again. I know we, we talked... Thank you. Yeah, a few years ago now. God, 2015, wasn't it? Yeah, yes, yes, yeah. Time flies, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to talk about your wonderful little girl, Jenna. How's she going now, mate? Oh, she's doing fantastic, mate. You know, it's... Uh, from when everything first happened, you know, it, um, you sort of wondered what uh, life had in store for... Not just her, but everyone in the family. But uh, uh, so far, so good, mate. You know, it's, uh, so long as she's happy, we're happy. So, you know, she just, uh, yeah, she's magnificent. You know, she's uh, made plenty of friends at school, which is great. So, yeah. one less one less thing to have to worry about for now. So, amazing. She's a great uh, kid. Yeah. Mate, let's go back. Let's talk about that night in August 2015. Um, so, you know, a parent's worst nightmare, really. Just just talk, talk us through it. What happened? 
Oh, basically, mate, you know, uh, you've got little ones now. It's, uh, when they start going to childcare and things like that, they uh, start getting, you know, as you know, there's probably not a week that goes by that they don't get the sniffles or get sick or something like that, you know. And then on this particular night, you know, she was uh, no different, you know, mm. a little bit sick, but she felt a little bit sick and stuff, you know. And uh, I don't know, we had about, it was probably about 7, 7.30. She was still, you know, oh, uh, Still feel sick, Mum, you know. Uh, Karen had kept her home that day, you know, with, uh, and we had no issues, but we were all fine. And then uh, later that night, she she was sick again. But uh, when Karen you say sick, her, was she, know, when you say sick, vomiting, you mean? or Just, yeah, a little, little bit of a temperature and stuff, you know, yeah. and, and a little bit of a vomit. But, um, you know, when you when you have kids, mate, it's, uh, you think, oh, God, you know, it's like, God, do we go to the hospital? You ring up, you know, you ring doctors and... You know, yeah, I guess it's in the end, it's left it to your own uh, devices, you know, if, mm. I, if I use that word. But um, it's, it was nothing different than we'd had, you know, 15, 20 times before, mate. You know, a little bit of vomiting, a little bit of a fever. Yeah, unfortunately, this particular time, um, she was, uh, I think it was probably about 5 6 o'clock. She was a little bit less rare. This is in the morning, the, the, the following night after she went to bed. She was still fine, you know. Yeah. She said she felt sick, but she was talking and things like that. It's just uh, my wife just thought she was a little little bit different, a little less responsive than she normally was and things like that. And as, as you do as a parent, horrible things, mobile phones, but she thought, I'll just put my torch on, on, on my phone and have a bit of a look. And that's when she just seen that slight, faint couple of little dots, you know. And basically from there, uh, yeah, rang, rang the doctor and then they put us through to the ambulance and that. And, yeah, basically, yeah, the, the private ambulance was there first thing. Um, in the meantime, <laughs> poor dad's gone to work, none the wiser. So I, I've had no idea, mate. And because it, it was that purple rash, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, and yeah. just a couple of – and at that stage, it, it wasn't even – when Karen had first rang, it was only – Cut little dots, like mm. cut the minute, faint little dots, and then by the time that the ambulance uh, people had arrived, less than half an hour later, um, she was almost covered. Jeez. And uh, yeah, and then from there it just progressively spread more and more in the in the like, half an hour it took to get to the hospital. You know, so yes, you would then, have been. Yeah. you were confronted with with quite a sight, eh? Oh well, I got, I got received the phone call for, from my wife. I've let work know that, you know, I've got to go. And uh, it was a little scary because uh, I'd known a little bit about meningococcal, but in saying that, I, I sort of didn't realise that there was so many strains. Uh, unfortunately, what wasn't out there to meet me at the time. It was the, um, like the social worker and the poor old women and children's chaplain. So, uh, yeah, poor old dad's... It's uh yeah, not every day that uh thinking yeah you're gonna meet your wife, but uh, well, it's the, oh, and, you, and and we all know what the chaplain means. Um, ah uh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's last so, rites. That's yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So then they take me into uh, PICU or the ICU, and uh, they sort of sat me down to explain what was going on at the time before they let me see her. So I didn't sort of um, yeah freak out because yeah, it's not not the greatest of sight. No, and um. Yeah, just to uh, give a bit of a rundown and basically that the next 48 to 72 hours were, were very critical and yeah, particularly the first 24 hours, it, uh, they were expecting, you know, it's like, uh, we're sorry, but, you know, this might not work out as well as we'd hoped. You know, she she may well not survive the, uh, the night and then, mm. you know, uh, with the meningococcal comes the meningitis and stuff like that. So then they had to, Double check all that. So for, for seventy two hours, life was pretty scary at that time. So you knew, you just thought, well, you thought you were going to lose it, right? Oh, most certainly, mate. Most certainly, particularly that they explained how important that first twenty four hours. And you know, as parents, we shouldn't, but we still do. You know, yeah. we still blame ourselves, man. You know, but like yeah. the doctor said, timing. You know, had it been different parts of the day. You might have seen it. We, you might have taken her straight into the GP and stuff like that, you know, but unfortunately we don't have a crystal ball, you know, and mm. during <laughs> just a horrible timing, mate, you know. Yeah. It's just it happened so fast. Yeah. And, it's... yeah, because it was late at night, and unfortunately if it, we uh, left it 
well, we didn't leave. We just didn't know, you know, and, and it was – we pushed the limit to, you know, and we were lucky and so so was she, but we're also very, very thankful in saying that. Yeah. So, but, but, but at the same time, it was it was still touch and go, wasn't it? What, what happened next? What, oh, what did they have to do? Around the 48-hour mark, uh, started to see that um, they started to cover up. You could see the circulation in the body and a little bit like frostbite. You know, the, the body's reaction is to save all the main organs. So yes. basically before our very eyes, you could see the tips of her fingers, her toes, and that were basically getting darker and darker and darker and darker. And along with, you know, you've got two parents that don't know what's going on. You've got more nurses that you can probably see your doctors coming in and out. They don't always explain everything, you know. they got their own things they have to worry about, but then – they're also worried about the meningitis at, at the same time as well. You know, we were probably out about six to eight hours. They started to cover her hands and her feet after that. So then we had to ask why, even though you could basically see they were just like grapes, unfortunately. I know it sounds a horrible way to describe it, but, you know, in layman's terms, it was just like leaving, you know, a nice fresh set of grapes out in the sun and just basically watching them shrivel, shrivel. And that was happening to her fingers and her toes and, Still, it got to the point where I think the the doctors and the nurses realised they already oh, got to sort of cover these for the parents and stuff. So, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah then basically they they were amputated, right? Uh, basically, the the some of the fingers themselves pretty much they were that bad that they almost dropped off, so to yeah. speak. So yeah, but uh, what they do with the children is yeah they see and they'll take bits off, mm. and if the disease keeps slowly eating. With kids, they try not to take as much off as possible. So if it means that they have to trim, then they sort of trim from there. And then originally we were told, yeah, it's going to be fingers, maybe a few toes. So then the next day has gone past. It's like then they've informed us that no, it's stretching. They're going up to her arm and stuff. And then they bring in other other doctors to explain what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it sounds grisly, but but her life depends on on on, on that. Uh, yeah, exactly right. It's just the doctors trying to trying to do their their very very best, mate. You know, because he and 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 it's the inside as well. So what you see on the outside is just as bad because it eats your bones and it eats your muscles all from the inside out. You know, because you know we're scarring on the outside as well. It's you know a lot of people think she was you know that don't know Jenna's story actually think she was severely burnt, you know. Mm. And, uh, yes, unfortunately, that's just the scarring from uh, the septicemia and stuff, you know. So, it, um, And she yeah. started – when did she start to come good, Gary? Like 48 hours later, was it? I mean, because I, I know they had her on dialysis. So for those – probably those first three days, she was on dialysis and that. And um, it, it was probably after she came off, so I'd say about four or five days when the dialysis machine – um, was taken away and doctors were able to explain more to us, it was more like, well, she, they, they were a lot happier with her. Mm. Um, I should ask Gary before she came good, how, how close was she? How, how close did did you come to losing her? It was anywhere between half an hour and, and an hour. So, yeah. So um, if, you, if you got her in at half an hour to an hour later, you... you uh, yeah, yeah. Huge thank you for those ambulance men. Basically, it was from those two fantastic people there yeah. that her clock was ticking down, mate. You know, we didn't realise how close we were. But mm. you know, the ambulance drivers they can't say that to us. They just knew, mate. They've got their job, so they concentrated on that. Thank goodness for us and mm. for our lovely girl. And then, yes, emergency took over for that. But yeah, those those two fantastic drivers, man. Uh, yeah, it, it all started with them, mate, you know, so it, um, oh. yeah. How did you get through it, Gary? How, how were you going? Did you did you have oh. an outlet? Did you, uh, I don't know, how did you get through it? Uh, we've tried getting help. Um, my wife, she found it good. Oh, so I'm not a huge talker, mm. and the one thing I did promise myself is that I don't go back. Um. Like my wife made a journal and things like that. Yeah. I mate, I had to live that for six months. You know, it's uh, it's it's been and gone now, yeah. and you got to look forward. You know, it's it's hard not every now and then to look back, but going back doesn't do anyone any good. And like I said, mate, I still have me problems, but so long as she's happy, 
then I'm happy, mate. Do you um do you shed a tear? Still? Always, man. Always. It, uh, yeah, we mate. Thirty first of August, twenty fifteen is a day I, as much as I'd like to forget, I ain't never gonna forget. So, yeah. yeah. I think it's good to cry though. Oh yeah, it does. It does. It uh, yeah. Helps me. It doesn't always make you feel better. Because <laughs> you think after all the crying oh, I've done, mate, it, uh, I'd be able to talk about this a little better. But, yeah, yeah, like I said, it's just that dad thing that, you know, I was supposed to, but didn't quite work out. Well, it's no one's fault. It's just it's just the way yes. it, it no, happened. that's right. You know. And like I said, mate, and unlike plenty of other poor parents out there, I'm so grateful because I'm not being selfish, man. Yes, we have problems, but. I've said, unlike plenty of other poor dads out there, I get to go home to see me baby girl. So exactly, you know, she's still I feel here for all those other families and parents out there. Not just from a ninja cockle, but from anything, mate. You know, yeah, it, uh, yeah. I can hear you getting choked up now, children. Gary. <laughs> Sorry, mate. I don't. Yeah. I don't mean to. No, you're all right. Man. I just got to make sure I ain't got teary eyes when I go because I work with mechanics, mate. So. <laughs> go back to work. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh God, well, you, you just tell them what yeah. you've been talking about. I'm sure they'll understand. <laughs> <laughs> and she's going good now. Just lastly, like she's oh. she's good now. Eh? I, I I saw. Fantastic. Well, she's six yeah. now. I, I saw a, an yes. article on her recently. So it's ongoing, isn't it? She'll need sort of skin grafts as she grows. And yes. yep. you know yep. she's not out of the woods yet, but hey, she's she's oh, no, here. She's, she's You've got her till her body stops growing. Yeah, yeah, and that's uh, and that's and that's hard too, isn't it? I mean, you know, yes. you and the family. Yep. But at the same time, I've met this girl. I, she is just the most wonderful, strong, inspiring little girl, and she's got a great dad in you, Gary. So she's lucky, and a great <laughs> mum too. So yep. you know, she's just wonderful. Hey, listen, you got to get right. back to work. But listen, just lastly. Um, what's your advice, Gary? What's your advice to dads listening to this? All I can say is, like when you post to say, trust your guts, man. Yeah. You know, if you don't think whatever, the, whether it be a doctor, and in saying that, I don't, far from being any sort of doctor, mate, but if you don't feel what you're being told is correct or you're just worried, take them, mate. Whether take it's the, the wee hours of the morning, yep. anything like that. There's even GPs that are open till you know near midnight in some areas and stuff. But yeah, if you feel as though you don't want to go to the hospital, and sometimes it's a catch-up because you think, "Am I going to be waiting?" and things like that. But if you're ever in doubt, either ring up, even if you just want to ring up and have some advice. Yeah. But if you feel as though something's wrong, all I can say is do something about it, man. Yeah. Yeah. If, you know, if my wife and I had our chance again, you know, we we would have, but. You know, hindsight's a magnificent thing. And, you know, that all I can let people know is that it started just like a, a normal cold would. It just escalated so fast. My poor daughter only went to childcare once a week on a Friday. And we live, as you're aware, mate, we've got like half a neighbour, if I'm lucky. We live out on five acres. So, you do, just out of Adelaide, yeah. You know, <laughs> all these people we will say, oh, we won't catch it, we won't catch it. You just never know, man. You just never know. You never know. That's right, right. and and that's yep. right. You, you yep. don't know. You don't know how she got it. That, that, that's an important yep. uh, point to make too. You don't know how she got it. You don't know where she got it from. Yep. She could have got it from childcare. She could have got it from anywhere. That's exactly right. So yeah. And yeah. in saying that, twenty five percent of the population are carriers and carry it in your nose and throat. You can be a carrier and never ever contract meningococcal in your life, but yeah. you can pass it to other people. So yeah. and you can be tested for it. So good. Oh, Gary, thanks so much, mate. You've just been no, thank you. really, really great to chat too about this. And um, we can learn a lot from, from hearing hearing your story, I think. And give, give my best to Jenna, uh, Amelia oh, and Karen. Yeah. And hey, let's not forget. And, and let us never forget that she's still here. You can still go home and hug her. No worries. Oh, thank you so much. There he is, Gary Hansford. Uh, I said it before, but he is just one of the nicest, loveliest blokes. <laughs> just wears his heart in his sleeve and... He's doing such a great job with his two little girls, and it was such a, a pleasure to talk to him again. It's really important to note that Jenna was immunised for meningococcal. She was immunised for the C strain, um, which was on the National Register, but unfortunately Jenna got the B strain. The immunisation for the B strain was like four or $500, and, and not all families have got that sort of money lying around. Now, you might have noticed he said he didn't get professional help. 
for what he went through with Jenna. And that's okay. Um, You might not need that sort of professional help. And luckily, Gary, he's got mates that he can sort of open up to and, and really talk to. And I found that that's been the case with a few of our guests on this podcast um, that sort of don't get that professional help. And that's fine, like I say. But I think it's slowly changing, though. And I, I suppose it proves that we still have a bit of a way to go towards a general acceptance that putting your hand up to get that sort of help is, in fact, okay. Now, you can see Gary and his family in the new No Meninja Cockle campaigns on TV and and ads and um, in magazines, etc. And we'll put more info on that in our show notes. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So Gary's is one of the more extreme examples of what can happen, let's say that. But how do we know for sure when it's best to get our child to hospital for, a, for, a, for an array of other illnesses? Um, you know, what are the signs we need to look out for to make that all-important decision to stay home or just pack a bag and, and head into emergency? Associate Professor Paul Middleton is a Senior Specialist in Pre-Hospital and Emergency Medicine. He works at one of Australia's busiest hospitals. Yeah, God, it's crazy out there, especially in the emergency at Liverpool Hospital in southwestern Sydney. And he's written a book called What to Do When Your Child Gets Sick. What I love about this guy, he talks in layman's terms. It's very easy for us to understand, and we really appreciate that. Here he is, Paul Middleton. Paul Middleton, thank you for coming in, mate. Pleasure. Yeah, yeah. You... um. You're a bit of a guru in in, in this field, um, children's health and children's um, or sicknesses, and that's what we're going to talk about today sure. because it's really important. And uh, with my children, nine months old, twins, any Mate. any fever, <laughs> any rash, you just you don't panic, but yeah. you think, oh my god, uh, what do I do? So I know you've written a book, and we'll talk about that later. But let's just start with you first. Tell sure. tell me a bit about yourself. So, um, so I'm an emergency physician by yeah. training. Um, I've done some other bits and pieces in medicine. I was a surgeon, and uh, I was actually a nurse before I did medicine, which is a bit bizarre, but you know it helps a bit, I think. But I'm an emergency physician. I um, I uh, work uh, in the southwest of Sydney, and um, I am also the professor of emergency medicine there, which means I do a lot of research. Um, and uh, I also obviously still see sick people and mm. uh, at that hospital and then other hospitals as well. So uh, I keep sort of reasonably busy with that stuff. Yeah. Um, You're also a dad. I am a dad. Yeah, which is it's important. The best bit of For this all, really. show, anyway. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I am a dad uh, of Isabella and Charlie. Yeah. Uh, Izzy's 15, Charlie is 12. And um, yeah, uh, that's the best bit of life, of course. Yeah. Uh, to, one's a teenager, one's about to be one. Yeah, this yeah. whole teenage thing, you know, I'm not quite sure I'm good at it yet, you know, you know but uh, teenage girls, yeah, being a dad. <laughs> That's another episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. But I, I, what, I was, what struck me just now when you mentioned, you know, the, the, any rash, anything that happens, um, it, it's actually no different for us, you know, I've been doing it for 25 years but you know when my kids were young I was still there you know middle of the night thinking oh my god you know what do I do now Mm. is this this or is it that and you know so and I've uh, I've uh, you know been in the same place as everybody else driving them to the emergency department you know to make sure we're all okay yeah god Mm. and why have you written this book 
So the book originally, way back, way back in time when I used to live in London, was when because uh, myself and a friend who's another emergency doctor, we'd seen some tragic cases of a couple of kids that had actually been to the hospital and not sort of appeared all that badly unwell. Mm. And the parents took them home and sort of didn't really know what they should be looking for in terms of observing the children, what what would suggest that they were getting sicker, that sort of stuff. And when by the time they brought them back, unfortunately, they died. So tragic, awful, terrible. Mm. You know, none of us can almost imagine what that's like. But, but it made me realize that... Um, so we teach, I teach sort of other doctors about how you recognize sick kids. There's sort of various courses that we teach them on. And the things that you teach other doctors and nurses and paramedics, you know, they're the same things that parents can look for or teachers or anybody, really, because uh, they're all about, you know, how the child is in, in different ways. Okay, let's talk about colds, for example. Mm. When, when when do we take a child to hospital if they've got a really bad cold? And when, you know, when it starts to turn to the flu, I suppose. Yeah. Look... I think the first thing to realise is that um, things like so colds and flu, you know, they're a virus, number one. Mm-hmm. The point of that is that viruses don't get killed by antibiotics. So the reason that there's an increasing movement not to give antibiotics, because everybody wants a pill, you know what I mean? And over the last probably 50 years or so, increasing amounts of antibiotics given out for things like viruses because people want them because they think they'll do something. And, of course, the result of that is we've now got bugs that are resistant completely to, to, to um, antibiotics. Mm. And when you get those, then you're really in trouble. But colds and flu are still a virus. Now, there are a million of them. Avoiding them is extremely difficult. And there's a good argument to say that, you know, kids need to experience all these viruses as they're growing up when they're young because that's how they build their immune system. Um and that doesn't mean, of course, that you don't have vaccinations, which is a totally other discussion. But, you know, the thing is, is that colds and flus are necessary in some ways for children. Now, um, most of them give you a runny nose, give you a sore throat, you cough a bit, you know, you feel terrible because, you know, you've got a fever, you have muscle aches and pains, all those sort of things. OK, but um, generally, of course, you get better. And that within that bit, I think, lies the key about making a decision. And it's about how is your child compared to normal? Mm. And what is the sort of trajectory that they're on? So if you get a kid that's got a runny nose and a sore throat and a bit of a headache and a cough, 99.9 times, you know, out of 100, that will be just a cold. Um, there are, you know, you treat them with sort of conservative measures, lots to drink. Drinking is much more important than eating. Mm-hmm. Uh, but plenty of fluids, maybe some, you know, ibuprofen or some paracetamol or something like that to bring their temperature down. Not that that affects the actual course of the virus, but it makes them feel a whole lot better. Um, and the time frame is usually, you know, sort of three, four, five days, something like that. Um if a child is miserable but they have some fluids and they have some sort of neurofen or something like that and they act a lot better, they perk up, they interact with you, that sort of thing, that's generally a well child. And in fact, as a sort of rule of thumb, we say, you know, when we teach junior doctors this, we say you go into a room with a, with a child and the child is playing. The child is interacting with the parents. Even if they're a bit shy, they might interact a bit with you. They are alert. They're looking around at things and they're focusing on stuff. That child is a well child. Okay. And if a child is drowsy, uh, not interested, not really very responsive, that's really worrying. And that's when we start to say, okay, let's change gears here now and think about something else. It's good to know. But the trajectory is important. So like I say, you know, if a, if a child uh, feels not very well, feels a bit crap, and they get a bit better when they've had some neurofen, then they get a bit worse and they get a bit better, uh, that's sort of okay. It's about that trajectory, which is sort of resolutely going downhill. They're getting more disinterested. They're, getting, they're not drinking. They're not interacting with you. You know, that, that, those are things, if it's a continual, certainly a continual sort of deterioration, on the way to hospital. So, and it doesn't matter what time of night, hey? Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah, because so I think a lot of parents go, oh, it's 1 no, a.m. God, no, absolutely not. No. Look, for speaking from you know the medical point of view, from the emergency point of view, 
there's never a time of the day, there's never a day of the week when we wouldn't be totally happy to see a sick kid. Mm. You know, sick adults yeah. are a bit of a different story. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, we we will always be happy to see sick child. And again and again, you know, I always say to parents, uh, you know, look, I think this is a virus. There's this. These are the reasons why I don't think you need to be too concerned right now. But if things change, come back and see me right away. Right? Mm. Don't ever be afraid to do that. And if we go home again, come back again. You know, whatever yeah. you need to do. You know, the, the uh, medicine doesn't take much notice of time. Exactly. You know, medical right. problems. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what about rashes? Uh, you know, if if yeah. what, what, if you see a rash, when, when should I take a child to hospital? So. Um, once again, there's lots of rashes. Yes. And, you know, to be honest... Sorry to be so general, but... No, no that's <laughs> it's, fine. Because the, especially the meningococcal rash. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, on. they're a general problem. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the point, you know, is, is uh, these are common presenting problems, you know, that, mm. that, like whether it's a rash, whether it's a snotty nose, whether it's vomiting, there are common problems. Uh, the, the key to it is knowing when the common problem is not so common and when it's evolving from one into another. So, so rashes are, are interesting because there are so many of them, like there's so many viruses that we often can't tell you what the, what the rash is. Mm. You know, there are ones that are very obvious in their appearance. A meningococcal clearly is one. Um, Purple. And, yeah, look, it's, it's, um, it's a purpley dark red colour. Uh, the key thing about it is that it's, it's flat on the skin, so it doesn't stick up in a lump. Mm. It's usually flat on the skin, and it doesn't blanch, which means the key to it, um, if you've got a rash, which is that sort of funny purpley colour, um, you know, whilst somebody is already phoning for the ambulance, because if somebody's got a purple rash, you know, I, I'd much rather see them than I would people sitting at home thinking, well, is that actually blanching or not blanching or whatever? Yeah. But what you do is you take a glass and you roll it over the, the bit of rash. And with the pressure of the glass, what they should do is blanch. So the, the skin should go white, even though it's a rash. Yes. Um, if it stays purple then that's a worrying one. Go. Okay, so the glass test is an important thing. It's in the book, actually. But, yes, very good. Um, no, or even if your finger, with your finger, right? Because yeah, Audrey had a rash the other night, yeah. and I was pressing, pressing, pressing yeah. my chest, <laughs> but it was blanching, so it was okay. Yeah, absolutely. It's just easy to see with the glass because you can actually see it as you press on. Oh, of course. through the glass. I've, yeah. You know, whereas you press makes... on a finger and you can't see it until you take your finger uh, off. Of and, course. You know what I mean? So, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so... Um, uh, so some are, are very identifiable, and, and some things like, say, um, you know, chickenpox uh, is fairly identifiable, uh, measles, mumps, those sort of thing. Mm. But most rashes, they're all sort of fine little pink bits, you know, sometimes yeah. slightly raised, sometimes not. Those are, we call them, because, you know, like I said, we like to talk in our own language, these are a viral exanthem. So these are a, essentially, that just means a viral rash that's pink. Um, but they... Um, Wow. They are a rash that blanches. They are a rash that's often very small. It often covers quite a bit of the body. Um, often they're quite sparse as well. There's not lots and lots of them. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas things like the sort of measles rash tend to be very dense in their appearance. Yep. But um, we can often say, when you, we say, I can't tell you what it is, but what I can do is tell you what it's not. And that's actually quite an important thing, of course, because we're saying it's not meningococcal mm. and it's not this and it's not that. So, you know, don't worry too much. Make sure you give them plenty to drink. Give them some ibuprofen and paracetamol and come back if you're worried. Brilliant. Basically. Um, what about head bangs? Like a, a child falls over, hits a head, um, you know, at what point, again, yeah. do you take that child to hospital? Yeah. Um, well, I suppose the first thing to say is that the vast majority of head injuries end up with no problem whatsoever. Mm. Okay. <clears throat> the... The, the concerning, the actual concerning problem for us is bleeding inside the skull. That's the number one problem because what you've got then is you've got a skull which is like a box and you've got a brain which is a bit squishy like a blancmange and then you've got blood which is increasing in volume and then mm. squashing the brain inside the box. That is the big concern. That's, that's why we worry about head injuries generally but certainly in children as well. Um, the that is not common, as I say, but the things that would point you towards it would be um, if a child hits his head and is knocked unconscious, that uh, I would say is worth a trip to the hospital. Now, Definitely. even yeah. even having said that, you know, the actual incidence of bleeding within the skull is not that high, even in those circumstances. But, um, you know, I would say that's a good reason to take your child to hospital. Mm. If a child hits his head and has a fit afterwards, 
has any sort of convulsion, um, if they've got any form of sort of neurological symptoms, slur in their speech, not being able to walk properly, those sort of things. Um, and even if they um, they feel really unwell, they're vomiting. And, and if they vomited more than once, that's generally a sign that we should see them. Mm-hmm. Again, it may not be a, an internal problem, but we should at least see them because we want to reassure ourselves. But the um, once again... The key to this is that trajectory thing. It's how they go along over a period of time. So if you hit your head, you or I, children, whatever, you feel crap afterwards, all right? You feel you've got a headache, you feel a bit sick, you feel tired, and these sort of things associated with sort of a concussion or something like that, you know, they happen uh, a lot, but they are... They carry on on a sort of level trajectory. So you feel a bit crap, you feel like you're a, a bit sick, you've got a headache... But it stays like that. It doesn't mm. get worse. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and again, we get a bit of relief with some painkillers, you know, that sort of thing. The problem with it bleeding inside the skull is it changes. It gets worse. Yeah. Now, like most things, you know, if something happens, it should then get better or at least stay the same. If it's getting worse, the symptoms. So if they're getting drowsier, if they're continuing to vomit, you know, if they're having, you know, as I say, definitely any problems in walking or doing things or slurring their speech, that's an absolute immediate get there because that trajectory is worsening and that means something is evolving inside the skull right and you know that may need something to be done about it okay okay because yeah um from my kids for example if they yeah. hit their head it's, it's, they can't talk to us no. either so you've mm. really got to keep an eye on that trajectory yeah um we live in australia um, and lots of things can bite us yeah. and lots of things can kill us um, if we don't get help straight away. Uh, I grew up uh, in, well, let's call it Outback Australia for our international view, uh, listeners. Yeah. Um, lots of brown snakes, lots of redback spiders, no funnel webs, mm. bonus. <laughs> They're in Sydney. Yeah. But um, uh, look, insect bites, I suppose. Um, a spider bite, straight to a hospital, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would, I would, I would, because we don't know. Unless you see, you know, uh, you know, you might see this big hairy thing with thick legs, with its front legs up in the air, yeah. you know, looking like it's going to take a swing at you. You know, it's a funnel web. Absolutely, definitely. Um, the other things, of course, that that can cause harm, you know, the redbacks, things like that. All of them can kill a child, certainly. Mm. So, um, if you don't know, if you haven't seen it. And I mean, nobody who knows how to recognize a spider anyway, you know, if uh, I would be going to hospital with them. Yeah, Uh, because um, I don't want to sort of make people think, oh, my God, every single time my child looks like it's got a a bite of any sort whatsoever, go to hospital. But, you know, if uh, there's got to be some sort of history, I suppose, of of a spider being around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Um, But if there is that case, if it is a spider bite, then uh, then I think you go to hospital because. What you're, what you're doing is having, a, again, uh, some period of observation to look at the child and see, mm. are they changing? Because all of those things, like funnel web certainly, um, you know, you will deteriorate over a reasonably short period of time. You yes. know, you get more and more unwell. And the things that we watch for, increased breathing rate, increased heart rate, those you know, sort of things. Yeah, what can a parent watch for? If they think their child has been bitten by, you know, say, a funnel web or a redback. Yeah, what, what are but you looking out for? If, if you've got that suspicion, I would be saying, well, obviously, as I say, go to the hospital. Absolutely, yeah. don't make yeah. that decision right now. But um, there are things, I said earlier on at the beginning, that mm. we thought some years ago, you know, there are stuff that parents can look at the same way as we can look at. Yeah. Physiology is really important, okay? And so... Uh, once again, I often tell our, my junior doctors is that, you know, when somebody, they give you a history, so they say, oh, I've had pain here and it goes here and whatever, that should make you worry more or less, okay? But it doesn't tell you how sick somebody is. The only mm. thing it tells you how sick somebody is is abnormal physiology. Physiology means, you know, the way your heart beats, how fast it's beating, the way you're breathing, um, you know, the way that everything inside is working properly. And, and there are measurements that you can make. You can count the respiratory rate. You can take a pulse. But some of the most useful things is a thing called capillary refill right mm-hmm. which sounds complicated but it's really simple you get your finger yeah. you put it on the sternum which is a breastbone there yeah. you press for 5 seconds you take it off what should happen is the skin blanches so the uh, the blood disappears but it should come back to normal within 2 to 3 seconds right if the child's capillary refill is delayed so let's say they've been vomiting for instance so they're losing fluid mm-hmm. um and you press on it and it's 4 or 5 seconds 
that's a problem, all right? That's when you go to hospital because right. we know that what's happening there is they've lost a lot of fluid and they've lost a lot of volume in their body. You, the body is compensating by squeezing all the blood vessels really tight in the skin to try and keep that bit of blood, uh, lesser blood volume in the middle to so the vital bits like the brain. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it sort of shuts down the bits on the outside. So that's okay. why count, the two probably the key things I would say that you can do is you can count their breathing rate and you can do the capillary refill. And those are key observations. Now, children breathe at a particular rate. It changes as they get older. They breathe faster normally when they're young and slower as you get towards being an adult. Mm -hmm. But, you know, again, in our book there and and in other places online, you can find the the respiratory rates for children at different ages. And you just basically count their breathing. You you get your watch and you count for a minute and you count how many breaths in a minute. And if it's higher than normal, that's for a reason. Again, it's your body is compensating for a problem. And that's the key bit about when you're trying to spot a sick kids, you are watching for them for evidence that they're compensating for something nasty going on. Okay, okay. they're reacting to a problem. And then we yeah. talk, and then I talked earlier on quite a bit about traje- trajectory. Yes. Um, even though I can't say it all the time. <laughs> um, you count the breathing, you do the cap refill, and then you do it again half an hour later. And you do it again half an hour later. Now, if it stays the same, you know, cat refill is, well, let's say three seconds and their breathing is a bit elevated and they've got a cold and a flu. Okay, that's fine. Okay. But if their breathing's getting faster and you count it over two or three, four times mm-hmm. and their cat refill's getting slower, that child is deteriorating. Wow. So that trajectory is worsening. They should be in the emergency department. And that's for a lot of afflictions. That's that's well, sort of across the board. Absolutely. A- anything you suspect is going on, yeah. that's a really good test to do. Absolutely. Wow. And yeah. it's actually really it's really convenient in a lot of ways because you can have any number of things wrong with you, but your body reacts in a fairly similar way to all of them. Right. So if you've got sepsis, if you've got a really bad infection that goes into the blood, it's infecting various places, your breathing rate will go up. Your capillary refill will get delayed over a period of time. Um, if you've got um, well, almost anything else, you know, um, you've got diarrhea and vomiting, mm. then your respiratory rate will go up if you're sicker and your cap refill will be more delayed. If you've got blood loss, once again, your respiratory goes up, your capillary yep. refill gets delayed. So there are these things that are a standard body response to uh, an infection or an injury or an illness, uh, which happens the same time. And they sort of mean the same things every time. Yeah. You know, if your breathing rate's getting faster and your capillary refill's getting slower, you're ill. There's and something wrong. Something wrong, and you need to get something done about it. Gee, fantastic. That's such good advice. Yeah, and if a brown snake bites you, yeah, get, get, get to hospital. hospital. <laughs> but you remember the, the uh, you've got to do the... I'm um, terrified of those, I've got to say. Oh, mate, I'm an Englishman. The, you, know, <laughs> you, you must be There's doubly only one so. poisonous snake in the whole well, of England. Yeah, you know, yeah, but, um, my father killed a couple of them, and oh, my God, they, they just totally yeah. scattered us, that's but for sure. I, I remember still very clearly being on the plane to Australia the first time, <laughs> and just uh, in the back of the map, in the back of the seat, I saw we were coming over the top end, and two things. One is that uh, I uh, thought we were in, about to arrive in, in Melbourne, so I went up and got my bags ready, and people were looking at me like I was mad. I didn't realise it was another five or six hours to go. Um, and the other thing was I was reading Down Under by Bill Bryson. Yeah. And he said, and I just got to the point where he said, seven out of ten of the most poisonous animals in the world in Australia. And I thought, what? <laughs> what am I going there? You know. Oh, God. The, the other thing, uh, which is important, you know, if you get bitten by a snake, is that um, is the bandaging as well. Yes. The, the issue with things like snake limb snake bites is the fact that uh, a lot of the toxins are carried by the lymphatic vessels, which are not yes. the blood vessels. They're a lot smaller and more superficial. Mm. That means that you don't need quite the same degree of pressure. It's not like a tourniquet. You know, what you need to do is firmly and evenly bandage them, you know, from top to bottom of the limb mm. so that it just delays all that lymphatic spread of of, uh, of the toxins. Yeah. It doesn't stop it completely, but it slows it right down if it's, you do that. And you've got to relax, don't you? You can't be rushing you, anywhere. You, yeah, I mean, you know, unless you're somewhere out in the bush and you've got to sort of yeah. somehow get somewhere else, yeah. uh, that's the only real reason you've got, you know, for, for movement. You want to keep them still. You mm. want to stop them walking around if you can, you know, and uh, because every single time you in- increase your... You know, your heart rate and all that sort of stuff by exercise, mm. you're going to sort of push it through a bit more, push it towards the, the most important bits a yes. bit faster. And we should dispel the myth right here that, um, no, you can't cut it open when the bite is and suck the venom out. Only if you want it yourself. <laughs> Only if you want to poison yourself as yeah. well. So, yeah. no, that's, uh, you know, that belongs in old movies basically yeah. and nowhere else. Absolute yeah. garbage. Mm. 
We talk about trusting our gut in life. Yeah. I guess that, that really applies to this too, doesn't it? Of course Parents, it you just you got to trust yeah. your gut, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And all of the all the information, all of the sort of clinical skills, all the sort of stuff I can tell you about, you know, counting your respiratory rate, the rest of it, you know, frankly, all of it pales, you know, um, compared to trusting your gut. Mm. Um, now that, again, you know, my colleagues might say, oh, there's going to be more kids coming in. But, you know, we're pretty happy with that as I said. And I think trusting your gut is really important. And again, it, it's one of those things that I tend to tell our junior doctors and, you know, um, various other clinical people is that, you know, you might think that child is okay, but if the parent says, I'm worried, mm. then you take notice because they know you a lot better. They know the child a lot better than you ever will. And therefore you have to trust them. That's good to know. Um, yeah. What about allergies? What, what how bad does an allergy have to get before we take them to hospital? So um, allergies are, are sort of quite specific reactions. And an allergy, um, often you get a rash, although not always. Um, uh, people get swelling, especially around the, the, the mouth maybe or around the face. They can get wheezy. They can get abdo pain, abdominal pain. They can get some diarrhea. Now, this is where allergy sort of slides across the continuum into anaphylaxis. And anaphylaxis is the real worry because mm. anaphylaxis means you have such a profound reaction to something that you get all of these things happen and your blood pressure can drop. And again, it's one of those things that can kill you. But that's at the one end of a spectrum, okay? And um, that's what things like nut allergies is the real problem. So, you know, children do sometimes have allergies that are so profound that they get this anaphylactic reaction. And that's the thing, that's the type of thing where you end up having to have an EpiPen, or, you know, something like adrenaline and you stick in your leg. But that's not a common thing at mm. all. So and there's also, interestingly, a lot of discussion about the fact that as time goes on, especially in, uh, in sort of, you know, westernized first world places, that we are getting increasing rates of allergy and anaphylaxis. Uh, and there's a discussion about whether this is because we're almost, we're almost too clean. Yeah, you know, we we're so religious about scrubbing everything out of our you know like our clothes, our diet, our home, whatever that we actually don't do much rolling around in the mud anymore. Should we be doing that? Well, I, you know, look, I did, and I never had an allergic reaction. That that in itself, that's an anecdote, so that's not evidence. But, Me neither. You know, I think I think there is there's, there's some substance to the belief that. Um, the less you encounter some sorts of allergens, some things that may cause a reaction, then the more of an in, a sort of an exuberant response you'll have to it when you actually get affected by it. And that's mm. certainly a topic of discussion and investigation and research. Yes. Um, but most of the time, most things, you know, the vast majority of people don't get any allergies to anything. Um, and it can be nuts and it can be milk or it can be vegetables, it can be mud, whatever it is, that most people don't get allergic reactions to it. Um, and I think, I don't think necessarily that you've got to park outside a hospital, you know, when you give your child his first peanut. No. <laughs> um, if you give your child his first peanut and his lips swell up, then you take him to hospital, yeah. you know. But millions of children across the world, you know, have had nuts and without a problem, uh, so uh, it's very easy to have that sort of knee-jerk reaction uh, and think that, you know, these things are intrinsically harmful when, in actual fact, it's, again, part of a spectrum. People at one end of a spectrum may have some problems with this. Um, it's about recognising when the problem arises rather than just avoiding the situation completely, I would say. Yeah. And what about if your kid gets into your medication and, and takes a whole heap of tablets? Yeah. Um, one, call an ambulance. Yes. Two, make sure that you've got the bottle or the packets or whatever it was in. Because there are, you know, uh, overdose in children is something we worry a lot about mm. uh, in terms of taking it very seriously. Because, you know, the whole thing about kids, is, you know, is that they're small. It sounds like a bit dumb thing to say, but that means they've got a small volume. They've got a small volume for medications to be distributed in. That means they might take something, it'll be an adult dose, and it's far too much for them. So that's the first thing. The second thing is um, that, uh, you know, there are, there are undoubtedly 
small amounts of certain types of medications that will kill a child immediately, mm -hmm. very, very quickly. And especially things that affect, that are, that are actually there to treat problems with the, like the cardiovascular system, for instance. So there's a whole host of ones that are there to treat your blood pressure, beta blockers and calcium channel blockers and ACE inhibitors and all these different things that, you know, older adults might be prescribed by their GP um, to control their blood pressure or, you know, something like that. And if a child um, takes one of them? A child takes one of those. Just one? It, well, so there are single pills that can kill, absolutely. Wow. Um, to keep them away from NEN's... Absolutely right. Pill yeah. cabinet, yeah, yeah. definitely, and yeah. that's you know I've certainly seen children have got into you know into their grandparents sort of beta blockers and it, and it has killed them. If you're going to have a blanket rule, I would say if your child has taken some uh, some medications, especially if you don't know what they are and how many they've had, straight to hospital, straight to the ED. Brilliant. God, great advice. My God, <laughs> this has been fantastic. And you know, as you know, I have children, and I'm learning, learning, learning as we go along. We had. I mean, I think, I don't know who it was, actually, one of them cried out last night and I was straight in there and I, you know, yeah. felt her forehead and, yeah, you know, yeah. all that sort of stuff. So it's... Yeah. Look, I, I think I think it's good to invest in a thermometer as well. Yeah. Because a good lot idea. of people come into us and they say, oh, yeah, they had a fever. And I say, so what, what was the fever? What temperature was it? And they say, oh, no, I just felt the forehead. Mm. Now, yeah, sometimes, you know, you feel hot, your forehead feels hot. It's so imprecise, it's sort of not that helpful mm -hmm. often. I would like to say, I mean... From my point of view, I'd like to emphasise something, though, because, like I said earlier on, everybody who's walking on two legs needs to know CPR. We should mm. be taught it at junior school. We should It should be a life skill like cleaning your teeth or doing up your shoelaces. Nobody should not be able to do CPR and be prepared to do it. But in the end, there are two reasons, two things that kill children. One is a lack of oxygen. One is a lack of fluid. Okay, um, a lack, lack of oxygen. So, if you're breathing problems that are bad, or even some other problem that stops the oxygen circulating around the body, that will cause a cardiac arrest in the final stages. Um, hypovolemia, which is a lack of volume, mm -hmm. um, that again is the other cause of cardiac arrest. And this is why you know diarrheal illness is the biggest killer of children in the world. Right? Go to Africa, millions of people affected by diarrhea and millions of people dying, children, small children, purely because they've got the squits, basically. Sure. Because their volume is small, their surface area is actually quite big, um, and they can lose fluid easily, uh, but they haven't got much to lose. Okay. And therefore, this is why we tell people that if your child, what you need to do is to get your child to drink. Yeah. So when children are young, like your kids, mm -hmm. you know, if you brought them in with diarrhea, for instance, or they're vomiting or whatever, I'd say, okay, so they're pretty well, you know, they're interacting, they're pretty good. Um, you need to take them home. What you need to do more than anything else is you need to make them drink, even though they might be not happy about it, but mm -hmm. make them drink. And you need to measure things like the number and the weight of wet nappies. So okay. if kids are nine months old, you know, let's say they have four or five wet nappies a day and they weigh this much, mm -hmm. they should have four or five wet nappies a day and they should weigh this much. If they're not, if the nappies are light or dry or if they're not peeing, you know, only peeing once a day, that's because they haven't got any fluid left or not much left and yep. they are keeping it all inside to try and make things go. That's when you need to start making sure they're drinking more fluids because they need to go back to having five nappies a day that are heavy. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. So, yes. so young kids, that's a great marker, but when they're still wearing nappies, you can actually measure that. Yeah, you know? that's true. Um, and even the other key thing is even if children are vomiting, if you give them a little bit of fluid frequently, they will absorb quite a bit of it. Whereas if you give them a lot to drink in one go, they'll throw it up. Okay. So the key with, with kids with fevers, with diarrhea and vomiting, and often with even things like croup or bronchiolitis and whatever it may be, is keep giving them fluid, keep them drinking, but do it in small amounts very frequently. And then they keep absorbing, keep absorbing, and then watch the wet nappies. And if they're the same weight and the same number, it's all good. Slowly does it. Yeah, I'm yeah. glad you brought up diarrhea. That, that's an important one too, especially. Yeah, yeah, and of course it's amazingly common. Absolutely. Know? And yeah. the, the thing is, as well is a lot of viruses that kids get, they – for you and I, it might give us a cold. Mm. You know, for a child, it might give them a cold, but it might also give them diarrhea. And that mm. does happen. They have sort of effects on different systems at the same time. You know. But um, once again, there's a generic response to it. You know, Make them feel better. Give them drinks. Keep an eye on them. Make sure that they're still you know, reasonably alert and they're interacting and they smile. And, you know, Brilliant. They'll be good. Yeah. Oh, this has been great. Thank you so much, Paul. We really, really appreciate it, mate. Um, and if you're lucky enough or unlucky enough to go 
to a hospital in southwest Sydney, Liverpool. They'll meet you. <laughs> they may do. They'll yeah. be in good hands. Oh, okay. yeah, <laughs> and your book, What to Do When Your Child Gets Sick. Um, I can't wait to read it, actually, and my wife will read it too. Yeah, and uh, it's it's all part of our journey, and it's a really important part of our journey because, you know, kids get sick. <laughs> well, look, they do. They do, absolutely. And, and I think, um, you know, education for parents, teaching them what to look for is often – more useful in some ways. I, no, I won't say that. I was going to say more useful than going to a sort of resuscitation course doing CPR. Mm. That's never a waste of time. Mm. But I think there's more to it than that. You know, learning to intervene and stop them ever getting there is really vital. And that's the sort of skill that we don't teach. And hopefully we're going to teach that more and more to parents in the future. Brilliant stuff. Paul, thank you. Pleasure. Paul was so good to talk to about this. And I, I really like what he said about trusting your gut. This is just one of those times I think you really got to do that too. And we as parents know our children better than anyone. So yes, trust your gut. And as you heard there, Paul is very, very keen also to get every Australian to learn CPR. It was drummed into us at the hospital when our girls were in the neonatal intensive care unit there. And the nurses just wouldn't let us leave until we knew it back to front. So if there's a course near you, um, please get in there and learn it. It is so, so important. Well, I hope that helped you understand childhood illnesses and injury a little better and equipped you with some helpful tips to use next time your child isn't feeling too good or, heaven forbid, worse. As always, there's plenty more information in the show notes and we'd love to get your feedback with a review. I need your reviews, people. Please, please, please. We want a review. Five stars, four, three, two, one. Doesn't matter. We want to hear what you're thinking. And um, we'd love to get your feedback. Or let us know on um, the Being Dad Facebook page. Well, what an episode to go out on. (laughs) That is the end of season one, folks, of Being Dad with Alex Cullen. Wowzers. (laughs) What a ride it's been. Um, I want to say a huge thank you to you, dear listener, for supporting us reviewing us, sharing our message, that we as dads are not alone. We're in this together, and I really hope it's helped you. I really do hope it's helped you on your journey of fatherhood, because it's not easy, you know, and um, the more help we can get, the better we'll all be at being dad, you know. Thank you to our wonderful producer and fellow dad, Jake Taylor. He's worked so hard on this, um, often in his, his own free time, because For both of us, this really has been a labour of love that we found so, so immensely rewarding. Thank you to executive producer Nikki Hamilton, who believed in me and believed in this crazy idea I had for a podcast. Um, Gave me a shot, so I'm, I'm forever grateful for that. And thank you to my wife, Bonnie. Thank you, thank you, thank you, who's just allowed me to have the time to go and do this. You know, often taking the girls on long walks, while I record a voiceover or an interview over the internet from our living room or in the studio at Everly here in Sydney. It's funny, she said to me the other day, isn't it ironic that I take care of the kids, take them out walking while you sit here and talk about being a good parent? Ouch. She has a point, i got to say. Yeah, but um, thank you, darling. And so that's goodbye from me. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed doing this. It's really helped me on my journey in the early, I guess, stages of, of fatherhood. The girls are now nine months old, um, but I've learned so much from from fellow dads who, who've taken the time to come and talk to me. So thank you to them, a huge, huge thank you to them. And just tell their stories, because that's what this is all about, folks. This is about hearing other people's stories and, and relating and and really, I guess, again, knowing that you are not alone. That really helps. That has helped me. And uh, also, thank you to the wonderful experts coming in uh, and talking to us. And these people are amazing, amazing helps. They're they're just such fantastic experts in their fields. And they gave of their time to come and talk to me uh, and and you about... um, about those things that we care about, about those things that we really need to learn more about. So a huge thank you to them. Um, Thank you, thank you, thank you. So that's it for me. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. See you next time. See you soon, hopefully, for the next season of Being Dad. 
time to leave you, as always, with a quote from a famous dad. It's Sean McGinty. I don't know how famous Sean McGinty is. I've never heard of him. Apparently, he's an author. It's on the internet, so here it is. He said, Being a parent is like being addicted to a drug that utterly and mercilessly destroys your entire life, but is also just so freaking cute. Isn't that magic? A good one to go out on. Hey, thank you so much for listening to Being Dad with Alex Cullen. Goodbye for now. This was a Seven West podcast. The producer is Jake Taylor. Nikki Hamilton is our executive producer. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies.